While fatal overdoses continue to rise nationwide, one city, Dayton, Ohio, has seen its numbers drop by 50% over the past year. Whether you know it as the Gem City, the actual birthplace of aviation, or the home of Guided by Voices, one of my favorite bands, Dayton, Ohio is in many ways a model of a mid-sized American city. It's certainly been through the ups and downs that other mid-sized Ohio cities have experienced. It's been hit hard by the opioid epidemic and continues to experience significant challenges in housing, food access, and general inequality, which affects every facet of the city's health. I'm happy to report, though, that in recent years, Dayton is on the upswing, with a steady decline in unemployment and tons of development in a range of economic sectors, especially healthcare. Luckily for Dayton, there's a growing and dedicated healthcare workforce in the city and a mayor who really cares about the core issues that drive health outcomes. This is Prognosis Ohio, WCB's health policy and politics report. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. Every other week, we bring you a news roundup of health and healthcare developments in our state. Every other week as well, we share with you an interview with someone in Ohio who's either making a difference in or has a unique perspective on health-related matters. Today's guest is Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley. Before turning to today's guest, though, it's time for our news roundup. First up, the state budget was finally signed by Governor DeWine on the 18th of July. Yet, while funding the state is a good thing, the governor also vetoed a price transparency item that would have required that hospitals give patients billing estimates, as well as a provision that would have forced insurers to cover out-of-network medical services when those services were provided at an in-network facility. These provisions would have been a nice step towards preventing surprise medical billing, an issue that's getting a lot of attention nationally. Along with these vetoes, the governor signed into law a long-sought-after public health priority, a raise in the tobacco sales age, which I discussed a few months back on Prognosis Ohio with OSU tobacco policy expert Micah Berman. Ninety days after the budget was signed, Ohioans will have to be 21 to purchase tobacco products like cigarettes and vaping devices. Next, there's research showing that there are age and race disparities in the use of online patient portals, an increasingly commonplace part of primary care and family medicine. The study, carried out by faculty at The Ohio State University's College of Medicine, found that African-American and older patients were less likely than their counterparts to use digital patient portals. It's important to note, though, that this issue is not just an issue of access to technology. The researchers also pointed out that as healthcare becomes more digitized and these tools are more widely used, we have to make sure that these tools, as helpful as they can be, don't create new inequities in the healthcare system. Finally, some good news. The CDC is predicting that in 2018, there was a 22% decrease in overdose deaths in Ohio. The CDC is still producing its larger overdose death report, but the provisional numbers show that last year, Ohio made great progress in reducing overdose deaths. To continue the success, though, we have a lot of other problems that will need to be solved. Poverty, treatment access, and a society that still stigmatizes addiction. Since it's relevant, I'm going to do something that I haven't done thus far on this podcast, which is to plug the book I co-edited with my colleague, Dr. Berkeley Franz. The book is titled Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio, and was published this summer by the Ohio State University Press. It contains 53 contributions by Ohioans of all stripes, and its main aim is to reduce stigma around addiction. You can get it wherever you buy books, but hopefully at a small independent bookstore here in Ohio. Okay, that's it for today's news roundup. Check out our show notes at wcbe.org for links to the news items and the studies that we mentioned. It's time now to turn to today's guest. 
Originally from Mooresville, Indiana, Nan Welly has lived in Dayton since she attended the University of Dayton. After serving two terms on the city commission, Welly was elected mayor in 2013. On the national stage, she was recently elected as second vice president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, which sets her up to become president of the conference in 2021. I spoke with Mayor Welly in her office in downtown Dayton, where we addressed a wide range of topics, from disaster relief after the recent tornado, to food deserts, and to opioid addiction. I should also mention that I first got to know Mayor Whaley when she agreed to contribute to Not Far From Me, the book I just mentioned. Her piece is titled, The Stories Make It Real, A Mayor in the Heart of the Opioid Epidemic, and it's really worth reading. Okay, now to our conversation. Mayor Nan Welly, thanks for joining me on Prognosis Ohio. I'm glad to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so, you know, uh, we were actually scheduled to talk uh, a while ago. <laughs> I'm you know. sorry, it's been tough, yes. No, no, uh, but it's it got me thinking a little bit. A few major events kind of intervened in the middle mm-hmm. of all that, and here we were trying to do our podcast, our little podcast. And on the same weekend, you had a KKK march that you had to deal yes. with. And then you had a tragic tornado in, right. in Dayton. So I guess I just want to start by asking you, since we talk about health on this podcast, how are you? How is Dayton doing? How, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, well, I think Dayton is resilient and it has a grit about it that has been through a lot. And we're proud of that through our history. And so I think this summer will be another thing um, that is a time point, particularly with the tornadoes. Uh, when you have, I think it was 15 tornadoes go through a county in one night and an F4 that goes through an urban center, which normally doesn't happen. I, I think not really ever happened. Our biggest tornado in this region was probably Xenia. Xenia is a much smaller town. What year was that? Like in 1972 or 74, I think, in the 70s. So this was just pretty uh, deep experience that, you know, I, you just can never really expect. But I mean, we see extreme weather now and this kind of stuff is going to happen across the Midwest more and more. And so I was very proud of just how well our staff did um, from public works to the water department to finance. I mean, everybody is involved in it and they were just terrific. And the neighborhoods have been terrific and the businesses, you know, a lot of our businesses were hit and they all rebuilt, which is also amazing and a lot of manufacturing facilities. So uh, so yeah, so we're doing okay. Uh, you, you, uh, what doesn't kill you make you stronger, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just wanted to check in with that. I <laughs> Thank mean, obviously, you. you know, thinking about healthcare, access to healthcare, things like that. Sometimes we lose lose sight of the fact that we're, you know, major events like that are, are public health crises. Absolutely, uh, we were without water for about uh, about forty hours. Both water plants were in the line of the tornado, and we have a quadruple redundancy on electricity, so never in the history has like all the electricity gone out, but the substations that Dayton Power and Light had went down. But it's, I mean, I was pretty amazed how well they did, too. So, um, so yeah, the community really came together, and I think there was a strength in you to talk about health. I mean, there's this, this interest you know, on the social determinants about connectivity, and I think we really witnessed that in Old North Dayton. The connectivity of that community is very, very strong, and I think it's allowed them to rebound and through this recovery in a way that perhaps other communities aren't going to be as strong as that one. And you can just tell it because of the, that connectivity really matters when these kind of disasters happen. Yeah. Yeah. 
you're a mayor who continually wades into some national issues. I mean, you make your voice known. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't shy away from engaging those conversations. And it got me thinking, you know, especially now, you, I know you're going to be taking a leadership position with the U.S. Conference of mm-hmm. Mayors. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, how do you think about being a mayor uh, with regard to health issues specifically, but also on the national stage? I mean, where, where, how do you think about how to calibrate your voice to those conversations in healthcare on the state and national level? Sure. I think, you know, when I um, ran for mayor, I, I said that the mayor of Dayton should matter. And that was my mantra, right? I felt like before the mayor was just kind of in and out. There was no real voice, but the, that when the mayor says something, it should matter. It should matter to the community and it should matter to the country. And so I really internalized that moving forward. And we saw this with the opioid epidemic, you know, really went to the U.S. Conference of Mayors and other places, just tried to get to any national table I could to say, hey, this is a, a crisis and we need help, you know, trying to leverage that voice so so we could get what we needed here uh, federally, which we were successful, right, in doing, um, I think is really important. And so whether it's, um, you know, another one, you know, suing the drug companies, which we've done, we're the fourth city in the country to do that. You know, we try to really, you know, hold people accountable to what they're happening in mid-sized cities. And mid-sized cities are where most of the people live. You know, when you think of cities, of course, you think of my friends in New York or L.A., but most of the people do in this country do the living and dying in the cities like Dayton. And so it's really important that those of us that are leading those cities step up and talk about what's really going on in these communities. What do you see as a mayor of a mid-sized American city that maybe other people miss in healthcare? I always like to quote, when I first was elected mayor, I went to see Senator Brown, who's my mentor, and um, there was like a magazine with Joe Biden on the front of it. And you know, Biden has ways of saying things interestingly and so they had this back it said joe You're so being, diplomatic yeah That's... so joe joe being joe and the first quote and this is two weeks after i married said um I've never had an interest in being mayor because that's a real job. You've got to produce. That's why I've been a senator for 36 years. And he said this in 2012, you know, so this wasn't like something, you know, in the nights. He says this in 2012. Is and that a Freudian slip? Or? I know, no, but I think he's like, when he came to Dayton in 2016, he would like shout it out in the, in the group, like, you know, oh, your job is tough. Like, you know, uh, mayor's jobs are... I, th- I think particularly now where um, we look at the, the dysfunction of D.C. and even the dysfunction in Columbus, right? Still no budget uh, in Columbus. You know, mayors are the places where people see their government the most and must have action. And if you're a mayor that doesn't get anything done, you're not going to make it. But whereas a lot of times in the legislature, if you don't do anything, you're probably going to live a long time. And I think, you know, that's really the difference between the positions. And so when you talk about health, you know, we have a combined health district. It's a county city. So, you know, don't even run a health district. Don't provide the social services for the community. They're, They're regionalized for the county. But still, it was very important for us to get engaged because our citizens were dying. And we're really addicted, and some of them still incredibly addicted. So we had to fight for those those resources for our citizens. And so I think that's the difference with a mayor. You don't say, oh, well, that's not my problem. Yeah. You say, oh, I need to figure out how to solve this problem, even when I'm not in charge of any of it. Like buck passing is pretty hard when you... Cannot. Yeah. 
cannot do it. There's no such thing in the mayor's seat. And so that makes it a really interesting position, I think, in the political arena. Well, I will note the uh, the, the state government has found the time to pass all sorts of other things, right. even though they haven't been able to pass the budget. <laughs> I know. So, so it's he, not like they're too busy. I know. They can like <laughs> weigh in on like if we should have valid Victorians or not. I thought, okay, right. that's and really important. Way now to we're going to declare a public health crisis around pornography and things yeah. like this yeah, instead of passing a budget. Yeah, a budget that is kind of important to, yeah. you know, communities and yeah. it's, and it's, it's shocking you know that you know it's one party super majorities you would think that this could be done really quickly but that was supposed to be the only good thing from a super majority right, right? and they even took that done. away right. <laughs> they have the same names i didn't understand why it's so hard you know One of the things we try to do on this podcast is to broaden how we think about healthcare Great. and to think about housing and things like that. Can you tell me a little bit about um, you know that um, and how do you see housing and health in Dayton? Where where are you? Where do you hope to go? Just just like as I got involved in the opioid epidemic, I read the book Dreamland, and I read Desmond's book Evicted, and um, uh, really looked into the work that he's done around evictions. And uh, Dayton does not fare well on this. I think we're twenty sixth worst in the country on it and you it's it's something that is not really seen i think in, in dayton you know our mm. we don't have a lot of homeless people living in tents in dayton um like some of our west coast or east coast cities but what we do find is we find this substandard housing and we find um this underground market for lack of a better word where folks do not have a voucher and um are couch surfing or doubling up and it is um like a a basic need housing especially in a place that has four seasons right and um or five or six yeah, depending right, on yeah right it's the old ohio joke right and so uh you know i actually when i think about this you know i got very active in education we passed uh universal pre-k here in dayton in 2016 oh, okay. and one of the stats I, i'll never forget is that a foundation came in and said let's study how many first graders stay in their um, school in first grade and end in the same school 41% of, of Dayton students end up in a different school at the beginning to end of first grade. Wow. That's a huge number of movement. And really, for kids, stability in home is really, really important for health, mm -hmm. um, for education, for being able to build building blocks. Of course, if you don't have a home and you're thinking about where you're going to be tonight, if it's going to be in your car or at your sister's house, or, but is she mad at me? You know, did I upset her yesterday? You know, I mean, these kind of questions that, first of all, that's like a huge mental toll uh, on mental health. And then secondly, you can't build to have uh, a lifestyle that is, you know, really you know, supporting yourself and your community. Uh, and you can't so, build because you're just, I mean, that's the right, Maslowian issue. Right. Of you're not meeting your basic needs. You're not meeting the basic needs. And so I thought Desmond did a nice job, and I've been asking this question. It's been interesting to get responses across the country. You know, I think the basis of this question is, is housing a human right? And um, I think there's some European countries that have said, yes, housing is a human right. But we have not said that in America. And I think that's really, when you talk about evictions, we're going to do some work of best practices here. But this is a national question about, is it a human right to have a home? And I believe it is, but I know there are others that believe it's not. And I think that is the conversation and the question that I think we need to wrestle with as a country.
we all have a housing issue. Mm-hmm. Every community has a housing issue, but my housing issue in Dayton looks very different than the housing issue in Eugene, Oregon, which is very different. Um, and so I think that's what makes it so hard to have like a national dialogue around it. And it's a little more complex than you think because the market is so fraught with really bad policy from the 60s, you know, segregation, mm-hmm. and that's taking decades to shake out. And so that's, that's, that's the work that we're doing right now is really trying to dig into that. And, you know, for Dayton, you know, we had so much vacancy mm-hmm. and we still do. So it's just, it's just a really, because of, you know, both the loss of population from 1963 to 2010 and then also the predatory lending um, crisis that really hit us as ground zero again. Uh, so those kind of double whammies, and then you take the Great Recession on top of it. We just had yeah. pretty big issues around it. So it's a very complex issue, but there are things that we can really make a difference around evictions that I think we can get to people before they're evicted. And we know, too, that that's much cheaper on the system, frankly, than waiting for someone to be homeless and then rehouse. And that's something that we're trying to trying to work on here. Yeah, we're not just trying to improve housing stock and things like that. We're also trying to undo systematic, yeah. historically entrenched dynamics like redlining and all of that. Right. That, you know, really were in place in communities until the early 1970s. And that is hard to undo after hundreds of years. Yeah. As you know, I first met you in the context of you contributing to the collection of stories about opioids in Ohio that my colleague Berkeley Franz and I put together. Thanks again for allowing us to include your story. I was so honored to get to ask to write, so thank you. It seems like this is one of the areas where there, Montgomery County and Dayton in particular, there's some really good news that even is a little bit far apart from what's going on in some other Ohio. I mean, some progress is being made in in patches here and there, but you have a real success story here. It seems at least a success story in in the making. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, where you are and where you hope to go? Sure. Uh, So 2017 was a really tough year for us on the opioid epidemic. You know, honestly, when I, again, when I go back to when I was running for mayor, I didn't ever bring up uh, the, it never really came up, frankly, about what are we going to do about this issue. So to see how quickly it came in 2014, when we, uh, you know, his first year as mayor, we did declare a public emergency to put up um, a needle exchange for harm reduction. And we were one of the first cities to do that. Uh, and frankly, did not get any pushback on it. Which not, is amazing because it's such a, I mean, in the public health world, it's right. such a no brainer, but it turns out to be very controversial. Right. And, you know, declaring an emergency because they've changed the law since then, but you know, you'd have to say it. And so we had to say it. And then I think we have three sites now across the city and region. I think one's in Trotwood, but two in Dayton. So, you know, we started to see this uptake, you know, immediately, I think in 2014 as well, we had our police officers start to carry naloxone. Um, our fire department likes to point out that they've been carrying it since 1978. Uh, and so just really started to see um, an increase on how much our ambulances and first responders, this was all they were working on by the end of 2016 and 2017. And um, would have to like get mutual aid from like two cities over because mm. all ambulances would be um, in use in the city, you know, on an overdose call. And so really recognized that this was a terrible problem for us. Our accidental overdose death numbers were enormous. Um, I think in 2017, it was like around 560, 565 for a, and this is countywide for a county that's around 520,000 people and started to ask questions about like what's going on and started to do just public meetings with judges and county commissioners and the city commission and uh, those public meetings showed, like, it was very clear, like, why we were having a problem. We weren't all on the same page. Mm-hmm. The judges were frustrated. The city was frustrated because, uh, we you know, our firefighters were having compassion fatigue. 
and it was so much the cost, you know, on the front line. Um, the county was frustrated because it didn't feel like they felt like everybody was blaming them and, you know, they don't have any partners. And so I have to give the county a lot of credit. They put together this collective impact model uh, to deal with uh, overdoses. And it's called uh, not just and we recognize, too, that it wasn't just going to be opioids. Right. Yeah. So we recognize this is an addiction issue, and especially now we're seeing that even yes. more. So it yeah. is, that's very predictable. And uh, yeah. um, called the Community Overdose Action Team or COAT. And um, I had a backbone where we all came together and said, look, we're going to have to solve this together. Uh, and I remember, I have to say, I remember like them coming back and saying, okay, we're going to do a collective impact model. The only other time we've really done a collective impact model in this community was around education. Mm. So it seemed like, a, a, like oh, okay, so we're going to take like something that's like this long-term problem, like education is a long, you're in the long game, and we have this public health crisis, right, and, and emergency, and we're going to use a collective impact. Is, is it going to be fast enough? You know, but what what it did, I mean, I think that was the key to it because it brought everybody to the same page. It made people move how they do work, mm -hmm. you know, because this was the priority and this was the community's priority. And so I think that made the difference. And but was, just being responsive to the community's priority is not always something that happens in every city. No, and you know you have to like you have to like leave you know your your chip uh, and your shoulder at the table like you know before you go in and like recognize that this issue is the most important issue and we're going to move heaven and earth to do what we need to do. Uh, and we saw dramatic decreases from 2017 to 2018. So um, in 2018, uh, we had cut accidental overdose deaths by half. So I think a lot of that is the harm reduction and the connection, and then um, um, naloxone. But also, this was at the same time when Medicaid ex expansion was really coming in, and so it's been the basis for that whole model, you know, to make sure that we get people in recovery. Uh, we're really excited. Just, uh, I think, a month ago, a company called 115 mm -hmm. opened in Dayton. Um, they are uh, creating a, a campus around addiction uh, that is really looking at the whole continu continuum of care and recognizing, again, that it's a, this is a longer deal than 30 days, and so how they keep people in for longer periods of time and have long-term living at this site, um, which is first class. Uh, because, you know, I and I, and I was excited. This was an, a company that came in. They're, they're actually owned by Alphabet. And, you know, of course, they're interested in data around brain mapping, and um, which is really, really important because there's not been a lot of science. If You, you know, I, I think one of the things that somebody said to me when we were doing this at, at CareSource, which is an insurance company here, and they said, um, you know, if you think about how much science is done on cardiovascular health and how much movement we've made on heart attacks and compare it to how much movement we've made where we still think we treat addiction in the basement of a church, that's a problem. And uh, I, I, that really stuck home to me. Like we need, you know, what's, and so people would say to me when we were in the throes of this, what's your goal? Why are you talking about this so much? And I said, you know, I want to be the community that treats addiction like the disease that it is. With this national group coming in and building this, I think they see that too. And that's what our hope is for Dayton as we move forward. I was very vocal about, and still am very vocal about this issue. Um, and usually when a mayor has an uptick in accidental overdose deaths, like I'm one of their first calls, you know, um, across the nation because I'm so vocal. But I wouldn't allow media to go on ride-alongs with police because I didn't want 
my community to be seen. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not the point, you know, is to see people at their very worst. The point is to talk about what we're going to do about it, recognize we have a problem, but I don't need ruin porn in Dayton to right. do that. And the sheriff, you know, unfortunately, we have a new sheriff now, but the previous sheriff, you know, wanted to do that. And I think that was... Why? The, Why? I don't know. I mean, I think, he, you know, I think the idea of like national media coming in was sexy or something, but we were, we were very, very... Um, strict on what who got to ride in the city of Dayton. And so if you notice the national press, frankly, it's always the county sheriff's pictures and not the city's pictures because of that. But that wasn't, the, but they would always say like, the mayor is happy to talk to you about this. Yeah. We know this is an issue because I really wanted it to be framed about treating addiction as a disease. And I don't think going on police ride-alongs and seeing people almost dead does that. So I think it, there's a nuance to it that I think is really, really important. Admitting you have a problem as, as a community is really, really important for the leaders. But then how you talk about it and what you do about it and how you, you know, portray it to the community is really important too. What's something that people might not know that's going on in Dayton that you're excited about? There's a ton happening here, mostly because we're very affordable, but we are an urban community. And in Western Ohio, we're probably one of the few urban places that is truly has tall buildings, right? If you think about Western Ohio, Toledo, Cincinnati on the edge, and then Dayton. And so we have this urban niche that young people really are gravitating to her. So we're seeing a lot more diversity and a lot more young people move into the city, which is very exciting. But the project I'm most excited about is this Gem City Market that is coming to Salem Avenue. It's an employee-owned grocery store um, that has gotten national funding, frankly, and local funding uh, to create a grocery store in the middle of one of our toughest food deserts on Salem Avenue. And they're really trying to build it in a way that is integrated for many levels of income. And I think that's the difference in it is they're really trying to dig into like we can all shop together. And um, because it's just, you know, over the bridge and three blocks up from downtown, right? Mm-hmm. So we have, like, folks that are doing well living in downtown. You go over the bridge. Um, and in my neighborhood, it's not, it's you know, it's, it's really a tough food desert. So trying to connect those people in shopping and, um, and in buying their food. And then hopefully that will raise... Uh, the level of food quality that people that live in food deserts have as well. And um, I'm really excited about that. And they just announced they're going to put a um, teaching kitchen in it as well. So really trying to teach people about how to cook and what that means and trying to get people to not shop at um, these terrible dollar stores that are just becoming a huge, huge problem for our communities. So I'm very excited about that. Great. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk oh, with me. Thank and, uh, you. Thanks for coming to Dayton. I'm so I'm so honored, and thank you for all your great work. I follow you, and I'm so grateful for the work you're doing across the state of Ohio. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thanks. Thanks so much to Mayor Whaley for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner, Mark France, and Kyle Rosenberger. Thanks especially to Kyle for making us the cool drum and piano samples of Randy Newman's Dayton, Ohio, 1903, which we thought would be fun given today's theme. Dory Gomes assisted with background research, copy, and prepared the show notes. You can subscribe to Prognosis Ohio through WCBE's webpage, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and really wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it if you'd leave a positive review so we can continue to grow the show. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at, at prognosisohio and email us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Finally, as we work on growing the show, making it a solid foundation for ongoing conversations about important issues in health and healthcare in Ohio, we'll be looking for some financial support. If you're interested in underwriting the podcast, please do be in touch with us. Our next episode will feature pediatric nephrologist Dr. Ray Bignall from Nationwide Children's Hospital. Among other things, we'll be discussing President Trump's recent executive order that promises to change how we approach kidney disease. It was a great interview, so stay tuned. Okay, until next time.